0: Welcome back, everyone, to Rules of the Arena podcast number 54. This week, I am finally back at Blind Ninja Studios. And with me in Studio B is Super producer Casey. Darn right I'm here. <laughs> and coming and joining me again is celebrity guest sandwich maker, Brian. I am here. <laughs> also I'm, from, I'm uh, have the bread. what shows are you on now?
1: I'm on many shows on yeah. this network. You get,
0: you, well, you got the Hop and Barrel podcast, uh, Homebrew Bound, and then... Uh, 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 the show we did before this. So Department of Defense Department of Defense. Jumped, in, jumped in three years ago, never left. Let's go. It's been a minute. Yeah. Grandpa Ben unfortunately can't be here this week due to some unforeseen family events, but he should hopefully be here again down the road. This week, my guest is Courtney Kramer. Kram- I'm going to butcher your last name. Kramier? Kramer?
2: It's actually pretty easy. It's Kammerer.
0: Kammerer. Thornton, making her directorial debut with the upcoming film, The Drop-Off. The Drop-Off is a postmodern Western noir showcasing the dark side of the American dream and the ultimate example of how apocalyptic can even can be necessary for real change to begin. Before we get into the film, let's get to know the director and master behind behind this upcoming film. Courtney, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. Please uh, introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us about yourself.
2: All right. Well, my name is Courtney Kammerer Thornton. Um, I like to say that I'm a pictorialist. I like to paint moving pictures. Um, I was born and raised in Simi Valley, California. It's right outside. the LA surrounding area is the best way to put it. Um, Went to UC Santa Cruz for school up north and then came right back down after graduating to start working in the film industry. And I've been working in entertainment for about 10 years now. So and now it's finally a time where I am going out to direct my own films <laughs> after everything I have learned. So um, here I am today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so when did you think that you started wanting to get into the Hollywood slash film industry?
2: Uh, loaded question is the way that <laughs> I would put that. Um, I My dad it was is a fire captain and he works in L.A. City. So as a kid, I always went downtown with him and I would see the yellow location signs that are infamously around Los Angeles for where you would go for different productions that are filming. Um, And I think that's really where it kind of sparked and then taking my parents' camcorder, 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 I can't even talk anymore. Um, (laughs) Growing up and my sister and I would always do broadcasts, like newscasting. And I think that's really kind of what sparked it. But what was interesting is I didn't really realize, Going into college, I thought I wanted to work in marketing of films, that I wanted to be the person who actually helped put up the billboards. I don't know why I was thinking that um, because I, I. it wasn't until I actually interned my first film out of college, which was pretty rad. It was Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. And it wasn't until I was actually working on set that I kind of had this epiphany of, oh my God, I've had it backwards the whole time. I want to be making the movies. I don't want to be selling them. And so it was when I was about 22, about probably nine years ago, um, is when I realized I want to move towards working in production and not working on that back end and actually being a part of the actual production process of making a film because I almost like didn't even realize that was an option growing up. Um, so, you know, it took me a little bit longer to get on that horse, but, um, yeah, so it was kind of like, I, I was more interested in marketing first of it and then realized it was production that I wanted to do. I wanted to be the person making the movies.
1: What, uh, so what was a particular thing that you had to kind of conquer to Get from you know point A to point B on that.
2: Well, don't you know that this is a meandering road in this industry? <laughs> well, let's go. <laughs>
0: well, I, know, <laughs> um, has a few I had to go a
2: lot out. of different points to get to point to A to point B. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing I think that really helped me in terms of getting my feet wet in terms of production was working for Joanne Seller. I was a producer's assistant for almost four years. Um, and I met her working on the master. She produced that movie. And so I went from interning to working as her assistant. I busted my ass on set and working for her and her husband, who's Daniel Lupi, He's an executive producer. He does Spielberg's films and Scorsese's films. Working for them was a, um, the best film film school I could have ever done. Um, I learned everything working from them, from development, pre-production, production, production, post-production, all the way through marketing and distribution. So working for them was like a world-class education because I really did get to dabble in a little bit of everything. And they gave me a lot of responsibility knowing that I could handle it. And so I think working for them was this moment that really kind of gave me the confidence because after work, after I kind of finished my job working underneath them, I started producing indie projects on my own and really had that confidence because I had that, because I knew every facet of the production after that, Um, at least dabbled in everything at that point. So from getting from point A, it was like working as an assistant was the biggest thing for me to get from point A to point B in terms of being confident to go out on my own.
0: Is there a, is there a degree for the production side of the house or is it more here's a slip of paper that says I can work in this industry, but the experience <laughs> really is what carries you?
2: Um, to put it this way. I don't think I needed to go to college to be in the film industry. I think what I like to tell people is if you have a good attitude, you have a good work ethic and you write everything down, you'll go far in this industry. Um, I work with people from all different backgrounds in terms of education as well. And um, it's probably one of the most uh, diverse landscapes, I think sometimes in terms of who your collaborators are. But do I think going to college was good in terms of you don't need to have like that paper you know to be able to like I can do this you don't need to take the class but what I learned in college had nothing to do so much with film but it um I worked I like I worked at the telephone outreach program at UC Santa Cruz and what that means is I was that person who called you at the end of the day asking for money from the alumni <laughs> from alumni and I got really good at it and I think that that was a um pivotal point in my life that helped me to where I am now with the drop off film, having no problem asking people for money because I know at the end of the day, the worst thing that I'm gonna get is a no. And then you're gonna get a hundred no's before you get a yes. So you just keep going, you just keep kind of moving forward. So I don't think that, you know, in terms of handing over the slip and saying that, you know, I, I know what I'm doing. I think in the end to be in the film industry, it's a good attitude, a good work ethic, you know, showing up on time every day and writing things down. So you don't have to be asked more than once are just really key. The key ingredients to getting your foot in the door and having, um, you know, getting a call back. It's all about your reputation in this industry. So that's what I would say.
1: <laughs> just showing a long up
2: long way around for that answer.
1: <laughs> no, no, we dig it. Yeah, no, I think you're saying that just showing up is a big part of it. Huh?
2: yeah definitely um and with a good attitude i mean you you come across a lot of people in this industry um you have people who are there for the love of cinema and you have people are there who are just there to collect a paycheck and uh i think having a good attitude and not i think again having a good attitude is really important is that what it's all
1: about though that it's all about the love of cinema like yeah you hear this a bunch
2: like- um, for me, at least, it's for the love of cinema. I love what I do. And I'm very fortunate to have worked on the projects that I have. And um, even now, I, my day job is set dressing. So I went from producing to set dressing because I knew I needed to take a job that at the end of the day I'm leaving my work at work. You can't move the other side of a couch after hours. You know what I mean?
1: That makes sense. So, so, the love of cinema. So I mean, like you, you, you've you've made this film. Like what what makes a film great for you?
2: Oh God, having a, being a having a, an emotional and physical response to something. Um, I'll give you an example. I I saw the movie. Have you seen 1917? I'm Sam Mendes. Yes, yes.
1: Yes. Very definitely. In the theater on purpose.
2: Yes. Yes. I saw that movie and in theater, in the theater. uh, Thank goodness, pre pandemic. Oh, so glad that was the one last, (laughs) one of the last few that I saw. Um, I had this emotional reckoning during that, during watching that film. There's this one scene where the bombs are going off and you see the, 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 fire tale of the bombs in a way and they're going through this blown up t- city and how the light moves was just so overwhelmingly beautiful that I started crying. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, normally I can keep it together. I couldn't figure out what emotionally triggered me to cry though. I just started, tears just started streaming and I realized that the scene was so beautifully composed that it, it emotionally triggered something in me and that's what it is to make art. When you can, when you can create that emotional response that a physical response ends up happening. Um, I think it's really beautiful. And I, that's what I am striving to create our projects that, um, not, you know, that you can relate to. Sure. But that hits you emotionally somewhere that you weren't kind of ready for.
0: <laughs> so,
1: so one of the ones you, you just mentioned was 1917. So, I mean, what, what films have been the most inspiring beyond 1917 and were there any that were connected to the one that you're, that you've created?
2: Well, I like to say that again, loaded question. When you're asking a filmmaker, the most inspiring (laughs) film, I I asked all my crew the same question recently for doing interviews with them and everyone just like, how dare you Courtney? (laughs) (laughs) But I would say for this film specifically, um, Yes, I've been watching a lot of Western films. Uh, I believe that if you want to uh, tackle a genre, that you must become an expert in it, so you can break all the rules of that genre. Which and, I gotta give you a like, nod.
0: Sorry to interrupt you. I gotta give you a nod on the artwork that you sent me for the posters. <laughs> that that old timey Western feel to it is just fucking cool.
1: With mask, that Thank was the cool you. thing. Because you look at the mask and you're like. That chick just went into the store or something. To, like,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh wait! She's one bandita
2: you don't want to fuck with, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you. My friend Peter Stoltz is the one who actually did that artwork, and That's he classic. Um, he doesn't work in film. I feel like he should, he'd be so great with doing poster uh, concept artwork, but yeah, those posters, I wanted one that really kind of was an homage to the 1940s and 1950s Westerns that you would see that looked like that classic Hollywood um, poster. And then also I was really into the Westerns of the seventies and the seventies vibe that you would get from some of the posters where they had those really clean lines and, um, the car there's there's a 1974 Dodge Dart that's actually my my daily driver. <laughs> um. And originally it was supposed to be a Torino, but we wanted to put a car on the front to kind of really play with the star ski and Hutch and this, <laughs> this, idea of like the seventies style, the sixties and the seventies style muscle cars and how really that's just, um, a metaphor for a modern day stallion riding through instead of having a horse, you have a car kind of cutting through the landscapes. Um, so we had fun doing those posters. So and Peter, I actually met while I was working at UC Santa Cruz. Um, he was, he was a student there, but we weren't students there at the same time. I worked, I, I raised money in his department is basically what i did and so we became friends and still are friends now um but what was your question
0: yeah sorry i interrupted there you <laughs> asked.
2: oh movies movies yes. one of the johnny guitar nicholas is raised uh nicholas raised johnny guitar was something that I. oh really yeah started.
1: inspiring influential yeah sorry
2: yeah <laughs> back, um I I was <laughs>
1: You you fight with podcasting like this, like you guys were talking, and I was thinking about my next move with this or that, and like you <laughs> called cool. it You're back, and I was like, I, I was it. paying attention to you, but but kind of not. So, <laughs> <I'm
2: sorry.
1: laughs> anyway, inspiring, influential, yeah.
2: Um. There's been a lot of movies and filmmakers that I've been inspired by. And I wouldn't, wouldn't say all of them come from the Western genre, although that is something that I've been studying very deeply on this project. Um, first one I said would, would be Johnny guitar, uh, Nicholas Ray's Johnny guitar, Joan Crawford is phenomenal in that film. And, um, so that was something that just the attitude and having a female lead in a time when they're in Westerns where you don't really get that very often. Um, that film was kind of one that started the ignition for me um one that's completely off uh off in terms of the western genres i don't know if you guys have heard of the director gaspard noe he's done enter the void um it's a great film you should watch it and he did this other movie called love and um i mean this with the most respect possible um it's like the most well lit porno I have ever watched <laughs> and, like you just get emotional it, uh, the sex scenes are so beautiful that you're just overwhelmed and you're like god the lighting is just impeccable in the scene um that's god, a really damn beautiful these sex beautiful film.
1: scenes <laughs>
2: so sexy. It was great. I actually, when I first watched it, I was working in an office. I was working on the morning show on Apple. This is great. I'm lo- I'm loving that I'm saying these out loud. I, I watched movies while I was at work, always kind of having something—not watch them, but multitasking. Right? No, but who
1: them. hasn't had a job where they like? I watch movies. <laughs> At my job too. Like, <laughs>
2: and I would, I would literally be budgeting for our department, and I started watching that movie, and it opens with a sex scene, and I was like, "Oh my god, I got to turn this off my computer. This is just not safe for work right now." <laughs> but, um, but that movie's beautiful in terms um, of the just the romance scenes. I felt as though the bodies felt very sculpt, like they're sculptures. And I found that really beautiful in terms of the human physique. and um, I'm trying to capture that in a couple of the scenes in my film um, in the interior bedroom love bloom scenes. Uh, if it's so a that Western a really one. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen uh, a marriage story. Have you guys seen that film? I Noah know had, Box, I haven't a, seen a marriage story. It's a really interesting film because I wrote this project. And I saw that movie after watching the project. It's basically a love story about divorce. It's beautiful, just the tragedy that comes with divorce, but also how beautiful it can be as well. Um, So that was one. And then um, what other ones have I been watching that have been inspiring for this film? Oh, Blue Jasmine, Woody Allen's Blue Jasmine. Did you guys see that one at all?
1: I mean, this is going to cause many tabs on my browser here, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we're we're, (laughs) working... We're all I don't know about you but I usually it. have
2: like 56 tabs open and it can be embarrassing sometimes oh, like that's my brain
1: I have many many tabs open like this you maybe maybe you know this maybe you don't but the like this podcast network that you're on is like uh, extremely nerdy so uh, there's a lot of uh, Dungeons and Dragons shit that's going on and so I that's think,
2: rad we watch Twitch at work while we're working yeah
1: right <laughs> Awesome.
2: <laughs> One of my bosses is a gamer, and we literally just sit there watching Twitch on our breaks, and then I just yep. ask him all these questions. And he gets really into telling me, I'm like, yes, <laughs> learning something new every day. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then other Western films, I would say spaghetti Westerns, anything that was really coming out of Cinecita, which is an Italian um, film studio. Um, so Sergio Leone films are always a great one. Anthony Mann's *A Wild Bunch* is a great film. Uh, anything from John Ford in terms of westerns—he has um, uh, boots really
1: reverberating off the, f- the wooden floor and a uh, spittoon.
2: And a lot of the compositional <laughs> shots that, he, or the compositions that he does with the landscapes. Um, huh. What I found—I knew I was on the right track with this film when I—I I, I started not by watching movies, but I started by studying paintings from the 19th century. Um, American painters who painted the landscape, those who kind of started going cross-country and painting what they saw. One painter that I was really inspired by was Frederick Remington. And um, he really focused his art on painting the landscape, especially the desert, in these kind of horizontal bands and getting these really intense... Um, cuts of the of the painting from like the, the blue to the yellow bands of the landscape and I was really inspired by that and then I read an article about John Ford and one of the painters he was inspired by was Frederick Remington and I was kind of blown away that I had this connection in terms of what he was studying and what I was studying and so it just kind of made me feel like I was going down the right path and um that I was doing something right, or I had some sort of inkling that I was going, that I was doing the Western genre right, in terms of not just studying the films, but studying painters as well, because painters are just early filmmakers in their own way. It's just static. So yeah, so uh, those I, those are some of the films I would say kind of inspired me. Red River from John Ford. Thus, The Searchers is also a great one. Um, broken era. I can keep going. I, <laughs> duel <in the> sun.
0: <laughs> I, I have some photographer friends. They like to joke that painting was inspired by photography and
2: just oh, to, I like to, that. To start a
0: fire, you know, in the room. But so you've worked on behind the scenes on some major productions such as you mentioned the Master, Dark Knight Rises, YouTube series Good Mythical Morning, and the web series Talents and the Dreams of Renee. Send sendem. If I'm saying that right. Sendem. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a awesome resume there in it's by itself but I mean outsider looking in Hollywood at least the way it's portrayed through the media seems to be like the old boys club air quotes uh would you say that's historically accurate and I mean have you ever had any challenges come up be you know trying to get your foot in the door because of that
2: um yes however I haven't let it stop me and it was more situations where I realized now later on being in the moment you don't really uh I think I work in an industry, and i w the way, the best way to put it, like I work in set dressing, so um I'm usually the only female set dresser on a team because it it is
1: sh can traditionally can we like jump that into a little bit about what set dressing like what does that mean like
2: for, let me tell you yeah no <laughs> okay. tell us that
1: that's what yeah, let's go.
2: So I work in set decoration, and what that means, uh, and there's multiple jobs in the set decoration. Wait, department. you,
1: you put stuff in a refrigerator if they make a res- like a shot yes. in the re- oh yeah that's I awesome
2: yes, oh think, that's so cool. I think my God, have I eaten my way through sets sometimes? <laughs> no, I believe it. Like
1: it's the uh, my favorite show is Wandavision right now, and I, they did a shot of the refrigerator, and it was like they made put all these products in there, and, and You know, it was like, well, I know what some of them are and some of them are show specific.
2: Yeah. And it's it's, so set dressing to answer your question is everything that you see on a set that is furniture based, um, that's decoration, we put in there. That's huge. I I
1: pay attention to that a ton. Like, that's awesome. It
2: it builds a character world. It does. The the way the colors
1: work, too, I think are pertinent for some shows. Right. And.
2: Exactly. And the set decorator works very closely with the production designer. The production designer is the one usually that's picking the colors, really creating that atmosphere and those elements. And then the decorator comes in and gives, you know, tells them what kind of furniture, what avenue they can go to in terms of looks, so to speak. And then they're the ones who are actually. Picking the couches, the chairs, the tables, the lamps, you know, everything. Artwork. Artwork is a huge thing in set decoration. And it can tell quite a bit of this. It can actually just further your narrative in terms of the story. Um, So one of the shows that I'm working on right now um, is Apple Pluses for All Mankind. Have you guys heard of it?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, uh, we'll, we'll look into it. Okay,
2: it's radical. It's. it's <laughs> I, don't, I don't. You guys haven't heard of that no. one?
1: I, what the hell? Again, I, are <laughs> you? I just think is to have fucking the internet? Casey's doing this one, and. <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, this we is just a got show running water last week. I mean, <laughs> out on where um, I started on season two, and I my my boss now. Um, shout out to Mike Mestas. Woo, he actually showed me the stages last year and my mind was blown. It was one of those experiences where um, I've had, I've had a couple of them in this industry, but it's, Holy shit! This is why I love working in this industry and why I love what I do, because you walk into a onto a soundstage and you're literally in a space station, and it just kind of blows your mind that you have all of these amazing collaborators who've made this come to life. And so I work in in set dressing on that show right now, and so I'm on season three, so I can't say anything about it. But um,
0: (laughs) quick, turn off recording.
2: (laughs) you get to you get to be a part of you're creating these worlds and um you you create these little moments for the astronauts whether it be if they're in if they have like a bed or something like that you're creating the notes that are from their loved ones back home or putting the photos up so you really are adding this last textural layer to these character worlds that make them feel real or make them feel relatable and i think that that's just such a beautiful thing and then again i get to leave at the end of the day and not take my work home with me so i can work on my projects
1: so it's a win-win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of that, like, why? So your own project. What? What made you want to jump into director of your first film? Like, what's uh you know why? That, why start in twenty 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 one?
2: Oh God! Yeah, let me talk about <laughs> let's that. let uh, talk about that. So it wasn't. I always had an inkling that I had my own projects that I wanted to make, but I don't think I ever had the confidence in the past, I would say maybe seven years. I was still producing. Um, I came to this moment on a project where I was, I'm not going to say which one, but, um, I was an associate producer at this company and I kind of hit a wall and I was like, I was working around the clock. I was hitting 17 hour days and I was completely unsatisfied with the um the content that we were that I was working on at that point. And I remember being being comp- I remember that when I came home. A bunch of pumpkin pies had fallen over in my car. I <laughs> literally, what happened? There's pumpkin pie surrounding me. I'm next to the trunk of my car. My dogs jump into my car and start eating the pumpkin pie. And I look at my husband, and I was like, "I think I'm putting in my two weeks." And I had this moment where I was, I realized I can't be working for other people. I can't be working 17-hour days. If you want to make your own projects, you need to, you need to turn the gear going that way you need to start walking down that path regardless if, if you don't know what it looks like the first thing you need to do is change your job so I ended up working moving segueing into art department which doesn't sound usually um that, the direction that a director would go but I had already been producing and um and I so I knew all the logistics or all the facets of production in terms of the logistical side but I felt as though if I wanted to um speak the visual language, that I needed to learn the visual language from, from art department, from production design, because it's the one side of the production that I didn't understand completely. So I ended up started, starting to work in set decoration under the art department. And um, it's probably for the past two years, I've been working on my own projects. And the drop-off was a really interesting one because I started with the drop-off of the kids. And then as I was writing it, the past moments for the two characters kind of came into being. And then the Western aspect actually came last. It was one of those moments of, holy shit, this is a modern day Western. Because I started just getting into Western movies, not because I wanted to write a Western. But it wasn't until I started studying that genre a little bit more. That I realized that this project was a modern day one, so um, so yeah, it was probably the past two years I've been really working on my own projects, and we were originally supposed to shoot this June (laughs) twenty twenty. No, yeah, right. Production was delayed. Right, it was one of these moments where I realized you just decided to pursue your directing career and a pandemic hit (laughs) and you have this moment of you can get through it. You know, I mean, everyone's in the same boat. Everyone's in the same place right now. Did it kind of, it rocked my world be realizing that I wasn't going to be able to shoot my film, but I also think it was this complete blessing in disguise because I was able to take six months off, not, not by choice, but, um, I had six months to really work on this project and hone in on the characters and the cinematography and the production design. And it's completely morphed into this beautiful world that I never would have even accomplished had I shot in June. If I had shot in June, it would have been very rushed. So now it's like everything's really thought out. Almost all the key players are on at this point. And um all the locations that we've already scouted all the, all of the locations. So it's just like now what it is just finally getting that last bit of funding to just be able to turn the key and just go. So, um, yeah. So the whole idea with this project too, is I'm going to be packaging it with a, I do the air quotes.
1: No, no,
2: package it with a feature that I have been writing. Um, which is, this the drop off is a concept piece they they're two completely different worlds but it just can the concept is like look at what we can do on this type of money this world's even crazier let's do this you know so um the whole idea is that i would package this and then i'd be pitching it to agents agents first that i met while working with the uh, you know the big wigs just they didn't even they're not gonna remember who i am i was an assistant But, um, but I think we have some really delicious items starting out, like with the concept artwork that is just highly conceptualized already very early on that um, I think it'll be a nice little package that we build to be able to get that funding for that feature film.
0: So for folks listening, they're going, what the hell is the drop off? What is the drop off film?
2: All right. So the drop off I say is a postmodern Western noir. And the reason why I say that is because it has multiple different aspects to it in terms of a Western. It has your traditional Western motifs in it, you have your anti-Western motifs, your um Western noir, as well as different parts of anti-revisionist films as well. But um it's a story about two parents that are two individuals meeting for the first time after their recent divorce to drop off the kids to the other parent for the weekend. Um, and it's really a love story about love lost and moving forward and a tale of survival of what what it takes for two parents to really um, make it on their own and also realize that sometimes you don't always have to stay together. It's not always right to stay together for the kids. As a product of divorced parents, I would say that, um, it's a really relatable subject. I, if, if anyone, anyone who's grown up with divorced parents probably has their own version of their drop off with their parents, whether that be at a gas station or um, a donut shop, all places that I was dropped <laughs> off at. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's really interesting because you do. It's such a it's such a relatable subject that I didn't realize how relatable was until I started having people read my script and how the characters resonated with them, and then how it sparked their own stories on what um, what they went through. Um, some parents were very amicable with their divorces. My I have some family members who had did not have amicable parents, and what did that look like for the kids growing up? Um, And, yeah, so I would just, yeah, it's a love story about love lost and moving forward and a tale of survival and a new day and age and what that looks like, us obviously all struggling with the pandemic and a new normal. These these individuals have to experience their own new normal as well.
0: So when did you start to formulate the story, and did you kind of put your own experiences or yourself into the characters or storyline of it?
2: Yes, a little bit. So what's really interesting is there – The the conception of this story uh, came from this really interesting moment where I was driving to my dad's house. He lives in Dulce, which is out um, LA surrounding area, again, um, out in the desert. And it's the same highway I grew up on going back and forth between my mom and my dad's house. And I started noticing the what I called the, the, the drop off checkpoints. Where as a kid, there were certain little, mo- um, certain moments along the trip where I knew I was getting closer and closer to my dad's or my mom's, depending on what like landmarks we were passing. So one of them was the LA Aqueduct, which is very um, well known in LA, and just a- these other things where there was these certain transmission towers that go over the freeway that have these balls that hang from them. And I always thought they looked like recess handballs as a kid, you know, or this, this piping system that I thought looked like a bridge for, um, mice to go across every day for work and back home to their families. These are the things I was thinking. And those came back up 2019. I started thinking about those moments and, um, I realized how beautiful the desert was, and I'd never really opened my eyes to that. Something A highway, again, that I had driven on hundreds of times growing up, and just kind of was just hit sideways by how subliminally charged, is what I like to say, the landscape was. And it completely reminded me, again, open the tab on your computer, Frederick Remington self-portrait. Um, <laughs> What it looked like, it was just this beautiful band of blue sky against this really golden yellow grass that was um, that was just all dead from uh, de- dead desert grasses. And between the desert and thinking about those moments, growing up, I was started thinking about, what were my sister and I doing in the back seat? What were we wearing? My mom happened to always put us in the same outfits, drove my sister crazy, but I loved it. Um, And then I kind of realized I had this, oh shit moment. It wasn't just me and my sister in the car there was also a parent in the car. It's, you know, just as kids, you're just kind of in your own world, right? And my parents made sure we were in our own world in that back seat with our games and everything and pillows and blankets, making sure we were set up for the drive. And I never even thought twice about what it was like for my mom and my dad in the front seat to have to drop us off every other weekend and what that would have meant for a single parent. So that's kind of where the um, the seeds of inspiration came from with the drop off. Was my my I wanted the story to be about a single parent after um, divorce, and what that looked like for these moments of dropping off the kids to the other parent. And those, so that's really just the one those seeds that kind of sparked the rest of the, uh, the imagination for me. And then just from there through the writing process, the characters completely morphed and changed into this, these, their own creatures and their own beings. And I think that was really exciting to see how that process came about, that it did start with the little seeds of my family, but completely changed into their own beings, which I liked.
0: And on your website, the, the dropofffilm.com, Oh, God, you're on the website. No, no. Brian might have it in a tab (laughs) here, but uh, the film's described as a love letter to the new genre we call – I'm going to butcher the hell out of this. uh,
2: Ruinisme amor.
1: Uh, I was going to say I'm pretty good at reading stuff. Uh, Yeah. Uh, You're a simian.
0: (laughs) Uh, What is the new genre and who created it, or are you on the Um, spearhead of this?
2: I created it. Uh, Thank you very much. No. um, So, yes, I – I feel it's something that I came up with for this film, uh, taking it back to 1917. That's, there's that one scene that I was telling you that just completely emotionally triggered me and my, um, I got really obsessive about it. And I, was, I started to go down this wormhole thinking, who was Sam Mendez inspired by with this shot? It's a painter. I felt like he was inspired by a painter for that. So, I started doing my research in terms of artists around that time, again, 18th or 19th century leading up into the 20th century. It's 1917. So, you're probably looking at art from the 19th century, the 1800s. Um, and I came across this painter named Hubert Robert. And he is a painter from the 19th century. And he painted these, uh, these paintings that he specifically left unfinished. Uh, on purpose, and they were all of cities in ruins. As what if scenarios, though. So, if you had the Louvre in in Paris, if it was demolished by, um, uh, if it was war torn, for instance, he he drew that and he would paint it, and he would always kind of leave them unfinished as a as a memento that uh, for his artwork. And the academy, I want to say, it was the academy where he went in Paris, but he was a student at a at a at a painting school <laughs> and at an art school and he had a um a, a genre painting named after his artwork and it was called ruinisme which means the aesthetics of ruins because again he painted cities and ruins and he actually they deemed a genre after him and then i had that moment again of like holy shit add love to the end of it and that's my movie <laughs> and i realized that if i just said Ruinismé for my film, it's the aesthetics of Love Ruined, and that's my movie. Um, there are films in this, in, there are films that showcase the beauty of Love Lost. I don't think there's been a term put to it though yet. So for me, I coined—I definitely coined the genre, the term of it. I like—I got really wild with this project, getting going down these d- wormholes. But I'd some projects.
0: I just like to show that we have uh, another scoop on a new movie genre. <laughs> this, this for the record, out there—it's on the internet. It's official now.
2: You guys heard it first, <laughs> <laughs> besides everyone who's read my website. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's. I felt like it was very important to come up with some sort of name for this genre because there are films who do display the beauty of tragic love. Um, Blue Valentine is one, Like Crazy, A Marriage Story. All of them talk about how beautiful love lost can be, but there's no really genre for it. They call it drama, you know? (laughs) So I think that it was really important for me to put a label to this, um, just because of everything I was studying and um i just found it incredibly beautiful the idea of rooney amor and just found that these characters it made, it just made sense with the two characters and what they went through
0: right.
2: Oh, so you searched hubert robert then yeah yes, that's the yeah, yeah, thing sure. I, I was just All saying
0: right. that i i know absolutely nothing about art painting at least but i mean it looks cool as hell it's just i don't know how to describe it in an intellectual manner <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know i study uh, I'm a big art history fan Um, and I wasn't until after college I started taking art history classes just for fun and just kind of my world opened up uh, tremendously in terms of filmmaking because of all the paintings that I studied and still do. Um, So I start to I always go down these wormholes with painters and seeing what they're inspired by and everything. so Hubert Robert, if I ever meet Sam Mendez, I'm just letting you know, that's my question to him. It's like, <laughs> were you inspired by Hubert Robert for this one specific scene? I need to know.
0: <laughs> so, so I'm just curious. Now Casey's dying to ask, uh, What's the, walk us through the pipeline to get a film off the ground because I know – Casey's got a few storyboards in the in the can from uh, the other show department of Defense, where we pitched some great ideas. I would say
1: there's some some, some great A
0: blockbuster films. I would not we'll call them great even
1: a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the gag is to make them as bad as possible.
2: <laughs> and there's a market for that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Shout True. out to Sci-Fi Channel. I mean.
2: Hey, I like the sci-fi channel. (laughs) Um, I think that's a really interesting question because there are so many different avenues and different ways to get a movie made today. Um, What... The, the best advice that I received and still take to heart is what Daniel Lupi once told me, I am um, DB him. Look at his street cred. <laughs> he, he said, if you want to make a movie, go make a movie. You don't, you don't need to have, you don't need to, you don't need to have the big budget says the guy who works on 150 to $250 million films, <laughs> but you don't need to have, a, you have an iPhone, go out and go make one. And it's true. And, and you can, and you can see today how um, there are quite a few projects being made as simply as on an iPhone. But it really, I think for me, starts with uh, doing your research and putting together a package. And I say that in a way because it's, sure you're gonna pitch people the project at some point, but you need to be able to pitch yourself and know your own information. Um, So in terms of a movie, it depends on what type of movie you're going to make. Are you going to make a short film or are we talking about a feature film?
1: Um, if Gordon's going to well, make it, it's going to be short. Yeah, it's going to be really short. I
2: mean,
0: <laughs> it's gonna, uh, and I'll jump out of the camera. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, well, I, the, the one Because I he's
1: going to need me and also Casey to yes. help him make this film.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the the film ideas we've come up with were craft beer fueled and maybe some bourbon in there. The, the, those shows are kind of hazy. Uh, but, I mean, we, we, we pitched the idea of some feature film actor and actresses names. Whether or not we could throw the budget together for that, that's questionable at best. But we'll say short film
2: what i like to say in terms of a film is have your ideal budget and have your bare bones budget (laughs) sure there's a world i mean the dreams of renee sundam is a really good example that was a feature film that i produced where we had a i think it was 3.5 million dollar budget and we put the package together we did our marketing research we found film find films that are similar to your film in terms of the genre Um, look at their budget, see if you can find out how much money they made, which is very, very hard to find these days. Because first of all, if we're talking post-pandemic, you can't even count theatrical release um, money and theatrical releases aren't happening. And that's usually the only, um, the only fun, like um, the only money you can find in terms of what a movie made. Like you don't, you can't find what Netflix paid for a movie and you can't find all these other streaming sites. So it's very hard to pinpoint how much a movie made, but it starts with finding films that are similar to yours, seeing what their budgets were, seeing if you can find out how much money that movie made um, and then see, and starting to build your cast list as well. And the problem with, here's what I find very difficult with casting. It's a catch 22 situation. You need to have money to get a cast member. You need a cast member to get money, so you you kind of find yourself in this (laughs) situation where it's it's your you. If you don't have money, you can't approach cast, and if you don't have any well-known other people, kind of executive producers.
1: Yeah, you hear about those like oh, I'll take less money because I'm a bigger name. Type type of situations is that prevalent? I mean, is that the catch twenty two you're talking about or?
2: Well, if you're, um, as someone like me, who's no one technically in the industry, sure. I've been an assistant for some big wigs. There's no doubt about it, but I was an assistant. I'm not the person who I was assisting, you know? Um, that we struggled on the dreams of Renee Sendam to find um, good cast for that for that film. Okay. But what we did too is we started out with our ideal budget of $3.5 million and we went to American Film Market, we pitched it. We, it was a really good experience to kind of see what people are, the questions that they ask you on the spot and how how well you really do need to know your film. I remember being thrown off when someone was like, what's your VFX budget? And then I just was like, I don't know. (laughs) Off the top of my head, I couldn't think of it, even though we had that budgeted. But um, it was really interesting because we ended up doing, we ended up having our ideal budget, like I said, and then our bare bones budget. And our bare bones budget ended up being $45,000, which meant hardly anyone was getting paid, stripped down crew, um, casting was no names pretty much, except for the small supporting roles. We were able to get some, like Joe Grafazzi and Steve Easton. that were These were family friends to our directors. So it's the only reason why we were able to get them.
0: See, but Casey, people in Hollywood aren't getting paid. Stop busting my balls. <laughs> I'm
1: in Wisconsin, man.
2: <laughs> well, you know, it's one of the things with my short film, which I made very, um, that I'm very, very adamant about, is making sure that every single person who's working on this film gets paid. Um, I've worked on too many short films that people are like, it's a passion project. Yeah, of course we can all start with one passion project and do one for free, but you shouldn't be doing seven for free. Um, so I'm all the people that are working on my film. It's why I'm trying to go for a stretch goal. Cause there's still two people that I would like to make sure I have money for be able to hand them a check, even though they've already done the work for free, it'll feel really good being able to pay them. But if you're doing a short film, I would say do a Kickstarter. The best way, and the reason why Kickstarter is so great or any type of uh, crowdfunding platform is because you have a built-in audience. And that means 150 people that are backing your film are 150 people who are going to be willing to either watch your film or buy it when it's done and um, that you have already like an audience championing your project. And I think that's the most important thing. And also being able to show to potential investors for, ha- for perhaps your next short film or a feature film that you, you have in the works that you can, you can raise money. Because the hardest thing about a film is convincing someone that this very expensive art form that we're doing is worth the money that you can turn in. you could that their investment will be will turn profitable because at the end of the day, like, yes, I like to say that I live for cinema and I want to make I want to make art every day. And I'm very fortunate that I have that Um perspective on how I think of my job, but I have to be able to make money back for people too, because this is a business at the end of the day. So Kickstarter is a great way to show people that, (laughs) Hey, I can build an audience. Hey, I can raise money and, um, and have that and have a platform that forever exists with your successful campaign. Um, but it is not easy being a Kickstarter campaign manager for a month. I'll tell you that.
0: (laughs) I mean, how does that even start with your pitch to a production company or investors? I mean, I've, I've been in sales customer service, but on a much, much smaller scale, if you're approaching a big name, Paramount, Universal, who, you know, whoever the case may be, how do you even start that conversation?
2: You know, it's hard. Um, it really depends because in a perfect world, you would know someone who knows someone who knows someone who can slip your script in front of that someone. So it's all, for what I've learned, it's a lot of word of mouth and getting um, people to champion your film, which, Fingers crossed this film is done and I can package it with my feature and I can talk to the producers I used to work with and be like, yo, champion my film for me. Be my executive producer. But this shit's got to be good. If I do that, I got to pull that. favor. If I'm going to pull that favor, then I have to make sure that what I'm putting in front of them is going to make them look good. Um, but it's hard if you haven't worked in the industry and haven't made those connections because sending blind emails can be tough, it's uh, it's something you just got to get over to that fear of sending that email, which is probably why I like to have the undo feature on my Gmail account because I constantly will undo an email and be like, no, no, you just got to send it, you know, <laughs> but I'll sometimes undo it just because of that. Um, but there are companies out there that really uh, let people know that everything that comes across their desk will be read or will be watched. So, um, I know Alamo, Alamo draft house, their, their, um, distribution company, they, uh, Tim league, he said that one time, um, he works with Paul Thomas Anderson, but also I watched him do a film independent talk. And he said that he was just like any film that comes in, um, it does get watched. So it's, it's, there are, there are distribution companies who do that, but if you're trying to find financing, I would all, there's the long running joke that ask a dentist (laughs) because they always say a dentist wants to be, have that street cred as a movie producer and they're technically a doctor. So they should have some good money. (laughs) So I'll tell you, I definitely pitched my dentist. I didn't get an email back, but, (laughs) but there are a lot of different ways to start that. But I would say for any film, start with a crowdfunding campaign, whether it just be for your initial um, injection of cash into your project, just to be able to show that you have some sort of presence online because it's so, it's, it's just so important to show that you have an audience, which is why, you know, social media is really important too. I like to say it's that necessary evil because I struggle to constantly, I'm constantly up. I
1: think we all (laughs) struggle with the Social media. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: Because they really do look at the number of followers you already have before you even make the movie or after the movie and see how engaged your audience is. And um, And
1: any of those algorithms or those metrics seem completely impossible when you were saying earlier about being a Kickstarter manager for 30 days and you're still (laughs) trying to run the socials. You know, it's.
2: Yes. And it's been. um, I've been working on the Kickstarter since November. Mm-hmm. So to put into context yeah. how long I've been working on the campaign, every single week I've been chipping away at making sure that we had the full package of what you need to have. S- Suddenly
1: you're producing a film lady job is uh, doing the social medias job. Yeah. It's-
2: <laughs> yeah. So I'm a, so I'm a can I'm the social media Uh, I'm my own social media intern, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) uh, Because
2: what it's done is it's completely, which is why I'm trying to get the last $3,000 as quickly as possible. But momentum's really slowed after we hit the initial 20 K. But, um, because I just want to be working on the film and it's, you know, I love talking about it. I love doing interviews because I think it's a really powerful tool to be able to tell people about your project and the art that you're trying to create, Um, but running the campaign is really taking up a lot of time. And so I'm just kind of like, just let's get the last $3,000 so I can flip back over into production mode so I can keep going down the path of making the film. Um, But it, it is a really gratifying experience because you see what I find so beautiful about Kickstarter is it's always the people you least expect that are, that are going to donate and donate. Right it. Yeah,
1: no, I hear you. Yeah.
2: Right. Um, and it's the ones that you most you, you put your all your eggs in, the, in some basket and in one basket thinking that certain people are going to donate and they don't. So it's this really kind of beautiful thing that happens, though, where you you rely on some and you have to realize you can't rely on them. And you have these other people who are just coming out of the woodworks to come and support your project. And you're like, thank you. You know, you just realize that with any movie especially today that it really does take a village to raise a Cinna baby is what I call it you know and our cine baby is now a to- a Cinna toddler you know it's walking <laughs> but it is true especially with indie film um you have so many people who help you and it it's it's a collaborative process whether they are on the creative team or they are your audience engaged it is quite literally a family that you're creating around this project and I find that just absolutely magical with filmmaking
1: totally so what's your stretch goal right now
2: 25k and so we, we hit 20,000 in five days, guys, <laughs> in five days. I was shocked by it. Um, and now we're trying to do 25K. There's a couple of things in the budget. There are three people I would like to put numbers next to their names and also for costume doubles because we have a Western scene that we'll, their outfits will get pretty dirty. And my costume designer is like, how did we not budget for doubles? So I'd like to do that. And we're, only, <laughs> so we're at 22K right now though. We just surpassed 22 today. So we're about 2,900, I want to say, away from hitting our goal. Um, And I definitely think it's going to take all 19 days, the rest of the days, because they're kind of trickling in. But that's kind of what happens with Kickstarters. You hit your initial goal and you just got to keep asking people for money. And um, so that's what I'm doing every day, just constantly going through my contacts. All of a sudden, I'll think of a new person being like, oh, yeah, I haven't emailed them yet. Let's just try it out. And sometimes it ends up being really great. Sometimes, you know, people, especially right now, it's been extremely difficult asking for money. You're asking people who've been out of work for more than six months in a pandemic for money. So we knew what we were going to be up against was a lot. And um, which is why I'm even so much more grateful than I ever thought. What's up, dog? You can come out. Come
1: on. <laughs> we, we had been expecting this the entire time. Come on, baby girl. There we go. <laughs>
0: And I, I was cruising my old lady.
2: Hold on one second. <laughs> yeah. Let me just actually. Oh, that's okay. Come here, mom. My old. She's my old lady. Oh, she's so cute. She's. I call her my old Bessie. She hates going on walks now. Um, she does. I gotta like take her out of that. She's twelve. She's my my pit. She's so cute. Um, but yeah, it's so you know in terms of making a movie. You you, you got to know, you got to be your own expert in your field first with a movie and make sure you know exactly what the story is that you're pitching. Um, building that audience is very important before you even get to shooting. Um, Kickstarter or any crowdsourcing or crowdfunding campaign um, is always a great way to start just because it really helps you, keeps you motivated and pumped too, and makes you stay on top of updating people and letting you letting people know where you're at so then they're stoked when you get around to shooting and when you're done with the movie you know so so that's what I would say, Casey. And if you guys ever need helps doing a Kickstarter campaign, I could help you guys and tell you. <laughs> it's a lot of work for we, a successful yeah. campaign. We're not going to make
1: a, a, a movie about. <laughs> 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 well,
0: we we pitched uh, The Rock and Charlize Theron. It's for, a
1: bunch uh, of nerds. Yeah, sitting we'll, we'll I get, don't we'll even get remember, it, man. We were yeah. so drunk. We'll it get it into the matter. pitch <laughs> after
0: we hit the record button. <laughs> So, I, and I was perusing your Kickstarter and I saw you have some really cool uh, reward tiers on there. And I saw for only $1,000 you can get your name thrown into the credits. Is that still an option?
2: Yeah. So so, um shamelessly
0: plug a podcast.
2: (laughs) I love the the prizes and they're very special to me. I made sure to put a cinema cowgirl on every single one of them. I really put a lot of thought into them because with Kickstarter, it's all about the incentives. You got to have some good ones, you know? So I tried to really make um, them as personable or personalized as possible. Um and everything on there, even like the keychain. That's gonna be a hardcore insert shot that we have in the car. And if you get that level, I think it's seventy-five dollars, you get that same keychain that you're gonna see in the in the movie. You know, or the bandana. Um that's, I think it's the $100 level. Tommy, actually, our main character, one of the leads, Tommy, wears a bandana. And it's really rad because it has little transmission tower robots all on it. And Tori, uh, Tori St. George, who's my graphic, one of my graphic designers, she designed the whole bandana. So each one of these things have already been made with so much love. And I'm excited that we can have... Um, them as part of our Kickstarter incentives. So yeah, donate a thousand bucks. You'll get that credit in the film, no problem. Let's go.
1: You you heard it right here. Donate a thousand bucks. If you guys
2: come out to California, I'll give you a cruise in one of my classic cars. I drive a 1974 Dodge (laughs) Dart, but my husband has a 1972 VW bus, and both of those guys (laughs) will be in the movie. (laughs) Let's just say we really take a risk driving in traffic in old vehicles. I feel
1: like we'd get to smoke pot in the the van. And so I'm into that.
0: (laughs) The rest
2: of you. Out here as well.
0: (laughs) So now that your funding is secured and the production green lights, you know, it has a green light. What are the next steps for you and, and the team?
2: Um, Well, everything is, every department is moving at this point um, and has been, which is really great. Uh, But what it means is we'll actually start to be able to pull the trigger on purchases. So, and um, one of the biggest things right now is casting. Um, I just cast my lead this past week. So I'll be doing a, a, this is the first time I'm announcing it, um, but my lead's been cast and I'm very excited about that. And so we all, we'll all need to finish casting Tommy and then the two girls that are supposed to be in the movie as well. So that's a, that, that takes precedence is getting those people locked in. Um, and we will also be starting to do set deck purchases. So we have everything kind of mapped out in terms of what we need to buy for these worlds. So it's just a matter of once we have the funding for it, just actually starting to hit purchase on all of those items. And um, my production designer, I'll be able to give her 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 budget finally for some of the art installations that she's doing. We're pulling off some really rad stuff for this project. We have this huge floral arch that's going over the bed. I don't know if you watched my Instagram stories, but I've been saving flowers for the past year and a half. So I have a whole underground storage that's just all flowers Uh, and it's, it's amazing. It's probably the coolest thing ever. So she needs to get, I need to get her money so she can start doing the expendables so she can make those purchases to actually assemble it. And we're doing this land ban installation is what I'm calling it. My homage to Frederick Remington, as well as the Vasquez rocks, which is what I grew up around (laughs) and doing this really interesting installation inside the house that will mimic the landscape outdoors. Um, Locking in the location, actually being able to give them the, ch- the deposit check so we can hold the dates, which will be a big thing for us. Um, so, yeah, all these different kind of moving parts to get the production going, that's the biggest part about having the green light for that. Everyone gets paid pretty much during production, so I have a little bit of a little bit of a cushion still with that. Um, but it's the purchases that are the big thing because we need to make sure that we have them in time before shooting. And well, the I mean, you're,
1: you're, you're doing a uh, – a Western film to like noir, of course. And so some costumage is probably a good, good option, right?
2: Yes. And because it is, um, a Western noir with psychologically complex characters, um, we have these costumes that are going to be, it's a mix between Western and Hope couture is the best way to put it. Um, we're trying to make them highly stylized Western costumes. So that's actually, um, costumes is going to have a bigger budget than most short films would because of that daydream that we have that are these interesting um outfits that they're wearing and which will be taking a little bit more money. Unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately, we want to make sure that our, I want to make sure my costume designer's happy is the best way to put it. So, um, and the the thing is with Western costumes and the environment that we're working in, we're shooting at this place called Vasquez rocks. Um, it's pretty awesome. It's very well known for classic Hollywood. I would say a lot of productions have filmed there and, um, but it's out in the desert. So one of the biggest things with the costumes for that scene is we need to have doubles, which means that we have to buy multiples of each costume. So when they get dirty, we can put them in another thing because it's not like we have. A- you you,
1: you kind of you were like, yeah, we need to have doubles. Like, what what does that mean?
2: You have you have literally double double um, of every part of the costume. So you'll have two shirts, two jackets, two pairs of pants. You you basically have two sets of everything.
1: Is that like a so, like two two people have to be out there to deal with that kind of situation, or like how does that work?
2: Well, yeah, you, you know. In theory, we would. You would have more than one costumer on set. You'd have multiple key costumers, is what they're called, um, to be able to help with the costumes, then changing someone out of them. Um, And the the thing is, is with a short film, on a big feature, you have a huge costume trailer that has all the costumes in it. You have a washer and dryer normally in this uh, trailer, too. So you can wash everything on the job, but we don't have that luxury. So we have to actually buy doubles of everything.
1: Oh, so, I see. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, because one thing will age in a sense. and some Some of the things you might want to look a little bit darker than others, yeah. Exactly.
2: And also they get dirty when you're out in the desert and we have one (laughs) character that's in all black and the other character is in all white. So like the person wearing the white, like after we do the chasing scenes, we can't have them sit down and look all completely dirty within terms of the next scene that we roll into. So you got to have doubles. Yeah. And those actually get really pricey. So, um, so that's a big thing too, that we're adding to the budget in terms of our stretch goal. And, um, I really want to get a dolly rental. That's the big thing. I think that's (laughs) that's usually you can get them for like 1500 bucks for a weekly rental. Um, but if you get a dolly, you also need a dolly grip. (laughs) 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 You need a person to work the dolly. So those two things are coming out of our stretch goal. If we hit our stretch goal as well. Mm.
0: So by Dolly, just little two wheels with handles on top and you can move your, your refrigerator with You know,
2: I was thinking a skateboard. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would love to get like a J.L. Fisher, like one of the nice ones. Um, but again, with that comes a bigger price tag. So if we hit our stretch goal, it's something that I think that we can definitely finagle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'll also be able to afford having to paying a dolly grip for the days that we need them on set as well. You know, discounted rate, of course, if (laughs) I really can work it.
0: (laughs) So when do you start officially shooting and how long do you have before the project needs to be all said and done?
2: So um, Kickstarter ends March 10th. We start and then I have a month of prep. Before that we start shooting our dates right now. If all cast are available for those days, um, April 12th through the 20th, it's seven days of shooting. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited about it. And well, and hopefully I'm already working with my editor, um, to lock in a post schedule. I'm, I'm very organized in terms of scheduling. It's the only way that you can stay on top of everything for a short film. Um, all said and done, I would like the project done the beginning of August, which is a very ambitious goal, but definitely something that we can do. So, and the reason being is the first, we have all the film festivals that we would actually like to um, apply to. And the first one being Sundance. And Sundance starts, I think, August 7th is the application period when, when it opens.
0: So do you have a release date set for this time for, for the film?
2: Well, the release date will depend on what festivals we get into a lot of the times with, you know, something we're going to obviously try for the top tier film festivals first, and then we'll move to our second tier and our niche um, tiers after that. But if we do hypothetically in a perfect world, we get into Sundance and uh, (laughs) and then our release date would be based on when we actually screen at the festival, because a festival like that requires us to have a worldwide the, the, the worldwide release at their festival. So, um, but if we don't get in the top tier, basically what we'll do is we'll do, we'll probably do a cast and crew screening before that, uh, hopefully by the end of this year. And again, a perfect world, which if you donate $150, <laughs> you get that as part of your, <laughs> part of your incentive is our cast and crew screening, which I'm, my goal is to do a drive-in and, um, in a perfect world, it would be at Vasquez rocks. So you would have the screen in front of the rocks and just this really idyllic location. Um, it's just amazing landscape behind you as you watch the film. So I just got to figure out the logistics of how that would work. Does everyone have their own Bluetooth speaker in the car? How does that work? You know? So,
0: <laughs> so Casey, when were you we going to California? <laughs> <do you> know <laughs> So being a short film, are you going to be doing nationwide release on the silver screen? Or what's the game plan from there?
2: I would like to get it distributed by a streaming company. Um, there's companies like Shorts International, which is big for streaming. But um, I don't know what a world looks like with a short film for, a, for nationwide theatrical release. I'm curious as to what. I'm kind of waiting to see what it looks like in a post-pandemic world for a theatrical release. And it also depends on if it gets distributed. If it gets distributed or if I have to self-distribute. If I self-distribute, I would like to do, probably I'll do a premiere screening at a drive-in, that's not the cast and crew one, um, in Los Angeles and have it be a hometown screening. Um, But that is going to, to morph and change over these next couple months because right now, People would say that once streaming services were coming out, that it was the wild west. But now it's even more so in terms of getting a film distributed because it's so different with the added layer of the pandemic being involved. So, um, so we're kind of waiting the next couple months. And I have um, our other executive producer has been doing distribution research and has their list of all the different distribution companies that we're going to be hitting up with this project at some point and majority of them are streaming companies because there is a world for short films now which is really nice not so much i think in theaters unless you're kind of pairing it with another film a feature film before it but um as our attention spans grow uh smaller and smaller <laughs> there is a world for short films now <laughs> But no matter what, there it will be distributed, whether it be another company doing it or um, us doing it in house with my production company, aka me. Then, um, then we'll do it that way. But no matter what, this film will see the light of day, which I'm really excited about.
0: And self distribution isn't you this selling it DVDs out of the back of a car. I mean, it's, you know.
2: <laughs> oh, totally. Venice Boardwalk trunk yeah. open, you guys want some, you know?
0: <laughs> I, I think all of us, at least, I. I, no, I assume Brian's he, been to Warp Tour he, and there's always that uh, one uh, band. So,
1: I've been around the block <laughs> Gordon.
2: Warp Tour. Oh, that brings <laughs> back memories.
0: <laughs> but for anyone that's listening and they want to help out with Kickstarter, where can they find it and when when is the exact campaign end?
2: So you can go to Kickstarter.com and you search the drop off and we're the first film that pops up. Um, you can also go to our website, the dropofffilm.com, or you can go to our Instagram page. And in our bio, we have the link right there as well to go straight to our Kickstarter campaign. Campaign ends, I want to say the 12th of March. <laughs> so um, we actually ended up pushing it back a couple of days. Um, but 12th of March, right around there is when it ends. So there's still some time. But the earlier the donation, the quicker we get to our stretch goal, the faster we can move towards moving back over, switching gears over to production, which is the goal. Because um, I'm not going to do another stretch goal after $5,000. That would just be um, time not well spent. If I already have a budget that's good and ready to go, it'll be fine.
0: <laughs> and we're, of course, it's fine, guys, it's
2: fine. I'm totally fine.
0: <laughs> 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 You're all
1: good. Yeah. <laughs> And Uh, now I hear you
0: (laughs) where of course can folks find the drop off on social media and on the internet.
2: So we have a Twitter and an Instagram page as well, um, or an Instagram account. Both of them are the drop off film. Um, So you can find us both there. And again, if you go to our website, the drop off film.com, it'll all, you can go and click on the Instagram and it'll take you right to there as well. But the drop off, film is the, is our handle. And, um, you can see all the lovely fix-ins there.
0: (laughs) And of course, if there's somebody listening and they're on the fence of going into the film production or as a career, or maybe want to get behind the camera themselves, uh, what's, what advice would you offer them?
2: For every hundred no's you get one. Yes. So don't stop because that's the one thing that I think is really important is that in this industry, you hit roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. But if you keep going, you will eventually get there. So I definitely that's what I would say is don't give up. Because if you if you can get past the no's, those that's the easy part is when you get past when it, when you can just let it roll off and you just keep moving forward. Um, so for every hundred no's there's a yes. So don't give up when the first person says no and the seventeenth no and the 87th no. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you again, Courtney, for taking time to be on the show. And thank you for everyone for taking the time to listen in. This show would not be possible without you. Many of you have asked how can you help out. There's a few things you can do. First off, head over to Apple Podcasts, Audible, or Facebook. Leave a five-star review. And secondly, tell your friends, family, coworkers, and convince them to check it out. Lastly, if you'd like me to help bring new episodes out, head over to patreon.com slash rules of the arena. I have a little tip jar set up there just for $1 per month. That's all I ask. And if you click on the link in the episode notes, you can check out the new merch store. And in there, the Hammer and Axe collection is available now for a limited time. If you want to keep in touch with new episodes and guests, follow the show on Facebook and Instagram, both at Rules of the Arena podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitch where you can tune into the conversations live. Head over to twitch.tv Rules of the Arena. If you missed the live stream but you still want to check out the video broadcast, you can find past recordings on YouTube. Just search for Rules of the Arena Podcast. And if you'd like to hold me directly for any comments, concerns, or would like to be a guest on the show, please shoot me an email to gordon at blindninjastudios.com. And don't forget to check out my other show called No Story Left Behind. You can find the show on its own feed wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And you can also find the show on Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> at No Story Left Behind podcast. Thank you again, everyone, and we will catch you next time.